to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I'm bringing you the news to know for the week of August 17th. As usual, try to cover six, seven stories, see what we have time for, roughly 20, 25 minutes. So let's get started. First story comes to us from CMS, and it was the announcement that came out that the AUC program has been extended through calendar year 2021 for continued testing. For those of you who don't know what that is, that is the PAMA law the appropriate use criteria which requires doctors at the time of ordering to go and consult clinical decision support to make sure that they are appropriately using imaging studies widely hated by every provider that has ever encountered this stuff so the good news is and i think it's because of covid the federal government has decided to extend another year. This law originally came out in 2014, so we've been fortunate it continues to get pushed. I am hoping that one day the federal government will wake up and go, gee, this program is a huge waste of time. We pay a fortune as a health system for software that can provide us the um, the, the tools that we need to meet this uh, this law and it does not provide value. There is no evidence that is reducing the unnecessary advanced imaging studies like MRI, CT, nuclear medicine studies, or PET. The studies that have been done out there show minimal impact, perhaps a reduction of one study per provider per year. And they'll claim that that's statistically significant, but it's not clinically significant and this program is a complete waste. And if you think about the hundreds of thousands of dollars that each health system is spending, if we had taken that and spent it on care for the poor, we would have done far better for our communities than this garbage. All right, and you guys know I hate that law and the tools that we are forced to use to comply with that law. I'm off my soapbox. Oh, so all right, let's go to a next topic here. This one is out of Kaiser Health News, and it's by Stephen Findlay, August 12, 2020. Primary care doctors look at payment overhaul after the pandemic disruption. And in this story, they interviewed Dr. Gabe Charbonneau, who is from Montana, and if you recall, recently on CMIO Podcast. And he was interviewed talking about how uh, it's a struggle to keep their rural practice afloat here. Here's what they said. Patient volume is slowly returning to pre-COVID levels, but the large Seattle area company that owns this practice is reassessing its operations as it adjusts to the new reality in healthcare. Charbonneau has been living has been given until September to demonstrate that his practice, Lifespan Family Medicine, is financially viable or face possible sale or closure. And Gabe said he thinks he's going to be okay, but it's definitely stressful on him. Like other businesses around the country, many doctors were forced to close their offices or at least see only emergency cases when the pandemic struck. That led to sharp revenue losses, layoffs, and pay cuts. And that is not uncommon across uh, primary care practices across the United States. 
So we're seeing our practices at roughly 80%, maybe up to 90% at times of their pre-COVID volume. But for healthcare systems that run on really tight margins, that's not enough. The primary care doctors in particular tend to be very volume dependent. They're not doing a lot of procedures which will, where they could have stockpiled those and then gone and knocked them all out real quickly and caught up. It's very, very difficult if you are hundreds or thousands of visits behind from where you were last year to try to catch that up. Uh, actually, nearly, probably impossible. So here, continuing with the article, they say one main problem, says Westfall, is the payment for telemedicine and virtual visits is still inadequate and telehealth is not available to everyone. And when our system, we found that roughly 20% were not able to complete a video visit. Telephone visits were successful, but insurance companies are starting to withdraw their coverage for uh, audio-only telehealth. Another paragraph here, health economics, health economists and patient advocates have long advocated a transition from fee-for-service to value, primarily to eliminate or at least greatly reduce the incentive to provide excessive and unneeded care and promote better management of people with chronic conditions. Uh, this would stabilize doctors' incomes, but that was a, a secondary goal. So only 31% of doctors co-owned or owned their practice and that was in 2018 and that's down from 48.5% so most providers are now becoming employed is what we're seeing that's probably not news to any of you who are listening to this show and so the question is, is what's Providence St. Joe's going to do in this situation are they interested in seeing their primary care doctors shift to a value-based model this is a hospital company. They make their money from heads in hospital beds. And those primary care doctors are valuable because they are feeding the beast. They order imaging studies. They refer to specialists. Those specialists perform procedures. And I think it'll be very controversial if the primary care practices elect to go towards a value-based model without the parent company being fully behind that. Sure, sure, they're going to say they're interested in value and quality-based care. Of course they are, unless they have to start closing hospitals. Now they're not so, uh, so in love with it. So why do I mention this for CMIOs to know? Because the payment models might shift because of COVID-19. We should be prepared. The question is, are those primary care providers equipped to move to a value-based model. It is not a light switch, and that is where health IT does come into play because they're going to need the population health tools to be successful. And if they haven't been doing this for many years and have the knowledge and insight as to what their patients are doing, what emergency departments are they using, when are they seeking care, do we have the ability to reach out and touch those patients in between visits? and remote patient monitoring of some kind, or at least some kind of surveying of those patients to say, are you doing okay today, those with the advanced illnesses? And if those tools are not in place, it is exceptionally difficult to make money at value-based care. And now there's penalties in the value-based care models. It's no longer just the upside only. You're seeing downside risk as high as 10%. 
And that's not financial stability for the family practice providers out there. I think there's still risk that they need to mitigate and that's only going to be done with investment in health IT and the individual doctors out there, primary care, uh, two and three provider practices, they can't afford the investment in the technology it's going to take to do this well. So they'll throw in with an accountable care organization or another large hospital system, just they'll be acquired or they'll just join the, the ACO and hope that they can make enough money on that to, to hang on. So look for that as CMIOs particularly the need for innovation and technology around value-based care. Let's cover two articles quickly here on telehealth. This one out of Becker's Hospital Review. Tennessee lawmakers passed legislation requiring permanent telemedicine coverage. Jackie uh, Drees wrote this about uh, yesterday, looks like. Tennessee lawmakers on August 13th passed a bill that would require insurance companies to cover telemedicine services in place of in-person visits when medically necessary. Legislation would allow services to be covered when delivered via telemedicine as a replacement to the in-person physician visits for the same conditions. Payers will be required to cover these services at the same rate as in-person care, but it expires April 2022 and now awaits signature from Tennessee Governor Bill Lee. A good first step, in my opinion, not enough. Expires in April of 2022. So what does that mean? I go and put in all my infrastructure now, and then someone pulls the rug out from under me? No, we need stability. We need a long-term plan for telehealth. I do not like these short-term measures. I think I applaud Tennessee for taking the first step, but they need to finish the job here. This should not expire in 2022. This is not about COVID. This is about the way care is going to be delivered. And I think the uh, Tennessee legislature missed that. Next article about telehealth also comes out of Becker's Hospital Review. Number of older adults using telehealth increased from 4% to 26% in 2020. One in four Americans over the age of 50 participated in a virtual medical visit during the first three months of COVID-19 pandemic. That's up from 4% of individuals who had a virtual visit with a physician in 2019. And this is according to the National Poll on Healthy Aging. They sampled roughly 2,000 adults aged 50 to 80, and they came up with five insights. 17% of participants said they still have never used any sort of video conferencing tool for any reason, including medical care. That's 11% fewer than the participants in the 2019 poll. 64% of participants felt very or somewhat comfortable with video conferencing technologies. That's up from 53% in 2019. 62% of participants said at least one of their providers offers telehealth visits compared to 14% in 2019. I'm surprised that number is not higher than 62%. I think significant numbers during the peak of COVID-19 were rushing to telehealth. Uh, Let's see, the number of participants with telehealth privacy concerns dropped from 49% in 2019 down to 24% in 2020. So definitely still seeing that people are concerned about the privacy, but heading in the right direction. And probably the most important one here, 72% of participants said they were interested in using telehealth to connect with the provider that they had seen before, and that's up from 58% in 2019. So telehealth is here to stay. We all know that now. And even though we're seeing significant reduction in our telehealth volumes, down to about 10% of our visits are now telehealth, 
there's still a demand out there. I think part of the problem is that our technology is still clunky. It's still very much based on the portal. It is very much dependent upon the final mile of infrastructure, which in our particular rural area is not great. We're looking at very poor Verizon service in some areas, and the Comcast broadband doesn't run out to all those areas. There's huge gaps. So that's the problem is trying to do video visits when you're looking at a farmer uh, trying to connect. Last article from Becker's. This one is interesting. It's uh, the title, Duke Health Partners with One Medical. And if you're not familiar with One Medical, they're, I call them like a concierge light type model. They're, I would describe them as cutting edge. They do have a subscription fee. It's roughly $200 a year. And you get access to virtual primary care as well as in office visits. And their offices are very clean, sleek, Apple store looking type places and offers very slick check-in processes and just what you would expect from a modern medical practice. So I'm a big fan of One Medical. I think they've done a great job. I think it's interesting that Duke has partnered with them though. And that's something as CMIOs I do want you to pay attention to because CMIOs, we would be involved in understanding how is the information going to flow between one medical and perhaps your system if you're looking at something like this? And whether it's one medical or some other practice, this direct pay primary care model is very attractive. And I think what we're seeing here with Duke engaging with one medical is that they're saying, look, we can't reproduce this. We can't do it ourselves. We don't want to do it ourselves. We'd rather partner with someone who's very successful at it. And we want to make sure that the flow of information between One Medical and Duke is going to be really good so that their specialists, which is what Duke really likes to do, particularly uh, cancer care and other subspecialty care, Duke is phenomenal at that. They want their referrals. They're not worried about the primary care. If they could partner with someone who's really good at it, that's still going to send them the business. And I think having the digital connection flowing, that the data will flow, is how Duke is, is going to manage the situation of others trying to disintermediate their primary care business. So as CMIOs, be watching for this and be thinking about how can you ensure that the flow of data will come from those primary care providers over to your health system so that your specialists in your hospital can continue to service those patients. Otherwise, they could get steered somewhere else. So it doesn't mean you have to go out and be the dominant primary care provider in the market, although that has been traditionally one of the strategies that the hospitals have employed. I think now you may see more in the partnership model and the, the flow of data being that currency that's used to help um, help secure these relationships. Next article. Out of EHR intelligence, older population often overlooked during EHR optimization. And this is by Christopher Jason, August 13th. And when they say EMR optimization, they're not really referring to what you and I typically think of, which is how to make providers better at using the tools. What they're talking about is whether the EHR is servicing the needs of the elderly population who tend to make up the predominant number of the inpatient visits. So 
a few lines from the article, EHR optimization at acute care hospitals is not up to the highest healthcare standard for older population patients, according to a study published in JAMIA. And what they're looking for is the four M's. And what do the four M's stand for? So the, yeah, their tagline here is four M stands for what matters. And they're looking for, med, number one is medication, uh, trying to reduce unnecessary medication usage. Mentation, which is the commitment to preventing and identifying um, mental disorders and then managing dementia is also part of the, it's the third M with, and depression, delirium or some of the other conditions I talked about. And then mobility, which refers to maintaining or improving functions. And so I want you to think about your EHR and how well it does with these different areas. I think medication, we do med rec, sure, but we don't get a lot of clinical decision support to say, hey, doc, you're over-medicating your patient. Some of us will build in, consider stopping the proton pump inhibitor on discharge from the hospital. Uh, still a ton of patients end up going home on them. I'm not sure how effective it is. And I'm not sure how great we are reducing polypharmacy. Usually when people come in the hospital, we load them up and they tend to stay on a lot of these meds. In terms of identifying and treating mental health disorders and dementia, we're pretty lousy at that. Yes, there's all kinds of tools that we could be using. PHQ-9s are commonly used in ambulatory, but an inpatient, we're generally not trying to manage chronic, whether it's low level, if it's severely dysfunctional uh, conditions, then we have to address it because it interferes with the treatment plan if the patient is severely demented or severely depressed and they're not going to take their medications, then when we send them out, they're going to end up bouncing right back and we get a readmission. So, but I don't think our electronic tools are very helpful for this. And perhaps that's something we could look at as CMIOs is what can we do to try to put these screening tools in place? A lot of that would fall, I suspect, to nursing, inpatient nursing, to conduct a survey whatever screening tool you want to use for dementia, whether it's mini mental status exams or uh, PHQ-9s for depression or what have you. Ideally, some of this could be done electronically through, uh, through a bedside, a, a, a MyChart bedside type uh, device or through social workers trying to unload the burden from nursing. I just don't think we can afford to have our nurses doing all this screening. And then the mobility part, I think we actually are pretty good about. And that's because we are really focused on preventing falls. And so we do have a predictive model for falls risk in going live in our system. And we do take a, a look and try to see which patients are at risk of falling, what medications we can start to adjust. So I think we're reasonable in the mobility section. I think we're not so great in the other three. And let's cover, yeah, I got time for just one more here. And this one comes from Pew, that's P-E-W, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust. And they've partnered up with MedStar and they're sending some comments to the Urban Institute, urging them to include additional questions in a survey that's going out to providers around their use of health IT. This is part of the 21st Century Cures Act, which to remind you was actually passed in 2016, but it, it continues to have its ramifications today. The uh, Office of the National Coordinator for HIT has contracted with the Urban Institute to develop a program that's going to be monitoring the implementation and the 
surveying of health IT. And so the Pew Charitable Trusts and MedStar have written a letter to Urban saying, hey, we want you to pay attention to some things for us. And so what they're looking for is that EHR usability can affect patient safety. And I'll read you a few paragraphs. Congress required that the EHR reporting program address usability, which refers to whether clinicians can efficiently, effectively, and satisfactorily interact with the technology. Usability challenges can result from the initial design of the systems, how they're customized by facilities, unique workflows, user training, and other factors. All things that are right up the alley of the CMIO. In fact, perhaps we are guilty of some of the customizations that have not always helped usability. So we do need to be thinking about our designs and helping the EHR vendors when they're way off track. They give an example here, a research study that was published in 2018 showed that EHR usability contributed to approximately a third of 9,000 health information technology related medication errors examined across three healthcare organizations that cared for children. 609 of these usability events reached the patients. In one case involving the birth of newborn twins, clinicians could not create a record for one of the infants, which delayed a necessary blood transfusion. And the workaround was, was to order it for the other child, which of course would make us all cringe and think about the potential for error and danger in that. So some of the other things that they looked on uh, and are urging the Urban Institute to consider here is around the uh, providing a more detailed focus on usability and safety to reduce risk. In particular, they're saying this section appropriately requests user input on aspects of EHR design known to introduce frustration on clinicians and those elements tied to safety. For example, the survey would collect data on whether the EHR was generally intuitive with its workflows, which can both affect the time needed by clinicians when using the system and contribute to errors. So sure, you want this system to be intuitive. I wonder if all of your systems are intuitive. I know mine's not. In particular, I was working with a provider around Prep for Case, which is an epic uh, tool that helps a ambulatory cardiologist, perhaps, or surgeon get a patient ready and put in their H&P and their orders for a case that they want to do over at the hospital. Not intuitive at all. That whole workflow is horrible and requires significant training and retraining to get the provider straight on it. So what they're encouraging here is that the survey should um, include the following criteria for responses, which is that uh, does the EHR enable simple and intuitive entry of patient information, provide uncluttered pick lists for placing medication orders, and provide intuitive visual displays that enhance safety. Finally, to obtain more in-depth information on usability concerns and perceived safety risks, the survey should also include an additional open-ended question related to safety. For example, the survey could request, what safety risks do you feel exist within your EHR? So I bring this article up because I wanted CMIOs to just kind of think about it. You may very well be one of the people who gets these surveys. But you should still be thinking about what in your EHR right now, if you had to think about it, would create safety issues that perhaps we can mitigate and perhaps we need to be working with our EHR vendors. So medication alerts is the one that always comes most common, but perhaps you are looking at, at other areas which involve orders that expire and aren't renewed, but perhaps they should be. And are, are our patients getting the care they need after that order expires. And that's just 
something that's kind of a feature of the EHR that really in paper, the paper world, I never really used to see that. Um, there's certainly the risk of placing doctors are ordering really quickly and particularly they're ordering these very large panels and they may include things in the panels that just aren't necessary and could subject the patient to further testing based upon unnecessary initial testing results. So you order a panel, you have your own admission order panel and just with one click you're just piling in there 20 different orders. Uh, great, very efficient, but not necessarily the safest thing in the world. So just think about your EHR where you might have some gaps. Uh, but I know right now I'm particularly, I'm looking at our order sets, we are looking at taking another hospital that we've merged with up on Epic. So we're looking at order sets and, and working with the other hospitals saying, hey, where can we find common ground and where can we find areas that are at risk where we can find and make things safer. And in particular, we're looking at post-op pain management. And why is it so different? Why would a podiatrist in one hospital need significantly different uh, pain regimens for the same procedure that would be done in another hospital. So if you can find that area, those area of variability and areas of EHR risk that we have inserted, perhaps your EHRs can be safer. And I'll wrap it up there for this week. And reaching out to, let's say, I'm trying to get Bill Russell on the show. I've taken on a new role in my organization, which has about 60 of the EHR analysts now reporting up to myself in the CNIO. And so I'm going to try to pick Bill Russell's brain on, hey, here are the challenges of leaders who are stepping into new roles in health IT. He certainly has done this and coaches many people on this. So I want to get his insights and I'm hoping to do a show with him and that'll be coming up, uh, hoping within the next few weeks. So I'll keep you posted about that. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Send me your ideas for shows, guess you'd like to hear from or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.